You're listening to Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher on Lead to Soar, bringing you the best leadership advice and mentorship from around the world. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Welcome to the Lead to Soar podcast. I'm your co-host, Mel Butcher. Today's episode is the second part of a discussion with Dr. Suzanne Wertheim. So if you haven't listened to it yet, you might want to go back and just take a listen to the first part of my discussion with Dr. Wertheim. It's the episode right before this. Dr. Wertheim is a linguistic anthropologist, and the topic of our discussion in this two-parter is inclusive language, especially how to be really mindful about your language as a leader so that you're fostering an inclusive environment. Without further ado, enjoy this second part of the discussion with Dr. Suzanne Wertheim. So here's, here's a quote from the book that I want to use to lead into the next question. Who is allowed to disagree with someone, to speak with authority, to be openly affectionate with their romantic partner, to ask for flexibility or accommodations? Turns out it's not everybody. Help us understand how language affects the way that we think about these different things. So another linguistic distortion that I've written about that I find very helpful, especially in workshops with leaders, and they're like, oh, is this concept of inflating language. So let me even go a step back that I didn't have time. The book, to my mind, is so short. I can't tell you how much I had to cut out of that book. So I have a workshop that I give on the foundations of bias in language. What are, what are the seven major ways that we can see in a workplace that bias is expressed through language? And the second one of them is when people get angry when someone who they see as beneath them, and I'm saying that with air quotes, someone that they see as beneath them doesn't again, quotes, know their place, doesn't act in a way that is beneath them. And so the problem is, so you can think about the hierarchies that are out there, right? So I'll just name a few. Male ranked over female, white ranked over other races and non-white ethnicities, abled over disabled, straight over LGBTQ+, cisgender over transgender, et cetera. So there are all of these hierarchies. And what happens is the way that we are program to understand the world is that people who are subordinate speak in subordinate ways and people who are higher ranked speak in higher ranked ways. You just think about in an email, who's allowed to just say no, or who's allowed to just give a command or say, oh, I don't think so, right? Like if it's going upwards, that doesn't go very well. There's a lot of stuff that's seen as licensed only for people talking in a downward direction. But in the workplace, There are lots of people who are from a socially subordinate group and understand I'm saying subordinate in quotes. This is just how society has arranged the hierarchies of identity groups. There are people who are seen as socially subordinate, but they are colleagues with someone on the same level or even maybe their boss. And so when they speak in a way that's appropriate for somebody who's your peer or who's your boss, it can get very confusing for somebody who still sees them as subordinate because of the group they belong to. And so it seems to be this human universal, and I can't figure out where it comes from in terms of, I look at neurobiology and other stuff. There just seems to be a thing where people get very angry 
when someone beneath them doesn't know their place. They don't mind if someone above them comes down to their level. Oh, they're so humble. Oh, they really don't have any airs about them. Oh, they're so modest. But there's a long list of words in English for people who are acting above themselves or uppity. So this is one of the main places that inflating language comes in, where somebody is just behaving like somebody in the dominant group, but there's this double standard that's applied and their stuff is seen as unacceptable and inappropriate. So inflating language is where behavior that you could describe as reasonable if you're masking identities and just describing behavior, oh, that's reasonable behavior, is described as and perceived as unacceptable, threatening, problematic, inappropriate. And so because this is a, a female-oriented podcast, I will say that in many, many languages, I keep on saying conflation. I wish I could find a, an easier word, but there's this linkage between feminine ways of speaking and subordinate ways of speaking. There are some very complicated articles about it in my field that I learned too hard for undergrads. So I'm not even gonna try to break it down here. But basically when women speak in ways with authority or express a dissent. So I have an example in the book where a, a female professor I know who's also East Asian is the only Asian person and the only woman in her department. And she gives a very gentle dissent in a department meeting, in a faculty meeting. She's like, oh, I don't think that's going to work though, because we also have to take service commitments into account. And her chair, who's uh, an older white man, pulls her aside after the meeting and calls it an unseemly outburst and says she's difficult to work with, right? So a thing that if any of his male colleagues had said it, or slash white colleagues had said it, it would have been a reasonable thing. Oh, I guess we should take service commitments into account. Hold on, I guess I have to redo the scheduling. So it's that kind of thing. The example that you talked about earlier uh, that I give in the book is gay people holding hands at a restaurant and somebody says, well, I don't mind if people are gay, but I don't want them shoving it in my face, right? So what's shoving it in their face? Like if you saw a young couple who were heterosexual, this person, not you, but this person, if she had seen a young couple holding hands and maybe a peck on the cheek, she might be like, oh, that's cute. But when it's a same gender couple, suddenly it becomes shoving it in your face. So this is a distortion that is deeply problematic because it affects how people see you, think about you, evaluate your performance, judge if you're ready to manage people. Oh, here's a, a thing that didn't make it into the book. I was at um, pre-pandemic, but still online meeting for mostly women of color. And this woman told a story in the group that I was in. She was a manager, but she was a black woman, had a, a new hire who was a white woman and much younger. And her performance wasn't very good. So she said to her, she was going to put her on a PIP, but before it was for people in Australia, I don't know, performance improvement plan. So she was going to lay out specifically, but before it became official, she was like, okay, let's have a meeting. And she said, here are some things that were, aren't working out that well. I need you to improve these, right? Let's set you up for success. And this young white woman went over the head of her manager to the VP and told stories, told tales out of school that were not true, that were filled with inflating language and said, aggressive, mean, shouting, yelling, cursing, said all of these things. And so this woman said, thank God, I know that VP for a long time and I have his trust and he believes in me, but what if I didn't? And so this happens again and again. I, I see this for people who have 
organizations that have service arms. This is also people who are the customer feel very capable of berating customer service people. And then if there's any pushback, like, oh, I'm sorry, you're misgendering me, or, oh, would you mind if, you know, if you did this very gentle, polite pushback is reported to a manager and said, this person was outrageous and people get fired because of inflating language. So inflating language, bad. (laughs) Try to find it and stop it and rephrase things so they're more accurate. Well, I want to ask you to comment on a real situation that came up in popular media, because I think this is the first place I encountered any of your writing and then learned about your book. And I hate to be the one to admit that there are a lot of parallels between sports and the business or professional world. So here we are with a sports example. Can you describe what happened with the NCAA basketball player, Angel Reese, and what was happening in language around her behavior? Again, a repetition, no different than a white player's behavior. Right. So, and there's nothing wrong with sports, which is PS also a business, a very big business. And we see the devaluation of female athletes all the time. I mean, look at women's soccer, right? So, or football, for those of you elsewhere, I wrote a piece on LinkedIn, and then it's also on my website where you can read it because it can be hard to find things on LinkedIn, where I talked about inflating language and double standards. So there were NCAA finals and NCAA games, women's college basketball, and there was a white player who's absolutely incredibly talented and I think was the top pick for WNBA, like is just incredibly talented. And so she did a gesture that I associated with wrestler John Cena, but then I've learned actually has a black origin. I apologize that I can't remember off the top of my head who originated it, but it's basically like, you can't see me. It's a hand in front of the face, right? And, uh, or is it, I can't see you. Anyway, there's a hand in front of the face. Which one is it? Do you remember? You can't see me. Yeah. You can't see me. Right. So it's like, basically I've performed incredibly well I'm a ninja. I'm a ninja. I'm invisible. You can't see me. P.S. Ninja is a great one to leave out of job descriptions. I'm sure we all know because that's very gendered. We don't think of female ninjas and people writing that they're looking for a tech ninja are often not even, speaking of mental models, imagining a female hire, right? So that's another one to take off the list. The IT guy. Yeah, exactly. The IT guy. We're looking for an engineering director. He needs to blah, blah, blah. Okay. So Long story short, nobody says anything. There's only positive feedback when this very, very talented white player does it. But in the final game in which the white player is on the losing team, a black player does it. And suddenly the internet explodes, explode. That's how I learned about it, right? Because suddenly I'm like, who, what? And so it turned out that there were so many negative names. I mean, curse words, uh, calling her an effing maybe R word. Like, I don't even know. Like I curse a lot, but I'm keeping it safe for your podcast, but bitch unprofessional, unprofessional. There it is unacceptable. But I mean like white sportscasters on Twitter wrote really venomous, venomous stuff. You can look up Angel Reese. You can go find my piece and see. And so to me, it was such a clear example of how inflating language reinforces a double standard, right? 
So, okay for dominant group person here, dominant group being white, and absolutely, completely unacceptable for literally exactly the same thing. It was a little bit longer in duration. I'm like, I don't care. I don't care. People came into my comments. They're like, but actually, well, really, if you look, she followed her around. I'm like, I don't care. It was 15 seconds instead of three seconds. I don't care. It's the same exact thing for a winning team person celebrating her win in sort of like a smack talky way. So I'm glad that you found me through that. I have a thing going viral right now on LinkedIn about Kristen Bell's not all white, but mostly all white dinner party. Oh, I reshared that one too. Yeah. <laughs> Why when you have a dinner party, like on the one hand, isn't it okay to choose your friends and choose who you're celebrating with. But on the other hand, why are all your work friends white? When you work with people from a bunch of places and what happens when you've got a homogenous group of industry people with power, then that homogenous group just replicates itself because of all of these ways that you just have these casual conversations and then jobs get offered. Well, and I think that that was the, the really big point for me in what you were pulling out there is that was not just a random group of ho-hum people getting together. That was a group of very, very powerful people. Okay, thank you for diving into that with us here. Can you talk to us just a little bit about some of the different ways that women in particular are erased or just a different way? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, how many, like we're already, we already have taken up a good amount of time. I'm delighted to talk about this. Let's say, let me do two kinds, one professional and one personal. So professional, when I talk about inclusive language and let's go back to the fungus and that network and thinking about in context and what's hidden, people will often expect just a list of words. Tell me what I should say. Tell me what I shouldn't say done. I'm like, Ing. you know, like, first of all, what's okay for one person to say might not be okay for you to say, but also sometimes it's silence. So I just gave an exercise to one of my clients for them to instantiate in Q3. And it is uh, running inclusive meetings. And in particular, it's a cliche, but I'm like, if it's a cliche, why isn't it fixed yet? It's a cliche that the woman isn't heard. The woman isn't called upon. Sometimes the woman is literally not invited to the meeting. Literally, this happens so frequently. Why, why wasn't she in the room? Why wasn't she in the Zoom meeting? Or I mean, people talk to me with bewilderment. I've interviewed a lot of female engineers in the Bay Area, some mechanical, but mostly computer science people. And they'll say, I can't believe it happened to me where I was pair programming. And I'm like, oh, here, we're debugging. And I'm like, here's the bug. And there's no uptake. There's no uptake. And an hour and a half later, my partner says, oh, here's the bug. And she's like, I, string of expletives found it an hour and a half ago. Why have we been spending an hour and a half? Or in a meeting, somebody will make a suggestion, again, a cliche. There's no uptake at all. And then somebody must have heard it in some way because her male colleague will say it a few minutes later and people say, oh, what a great idea, Jim. And they'll talk, they're like, I literally just said it. P.S., this is why I left tech. I was in FinTech for my first five years after college and I felt so minimized. I was treated with, not as far as contempt, it was just sort of like I, I was irrelevant. And I was doing as a tech writer kind of what you'd think of as early UX. And I would come in and be like, well, this doesn't feel like a good progression to me. What if we change the code? And they'd be like, oh, cute little lady, girly tech writer. Duh. And I was like, oh, my God, I literally got a PhD 
because men weren't listening to me. And I'm like, well, if they're my students, they have to listen. And it turned out, <laughs> yes, but they write, they might write mean things. They might write mean, they might call me a bitch on uh, student evaluations because I spoke with authority mm. and I made them do hard, hard work. Okay. So again, a cliche, but so the, the thing that I said to my client is basically assign a participation monitor. So somebody who's there to see, did everybody get heard? Did everyone say the thing? Did everyone get credit for their ideas? So I'm not going to give away the thing my client paid for, but basically just that, like you can figure out granularities yourselves because only when people, especially a Hyatt person, it's like, okay, Hyatt person, sit with this one out and you be the monitor. You're not going to contribute. You be the monitor. And when they actually see it, going back to the very beginning, when I said things are often invisible, they genuinely don't believe it until it happens. P.S. Also, I've read a lot of transgender stories for people who transitioned after they had entered the workplace. And so the stories are uniform. If you have been perceived as male and then you're perceived as female, there's a story from an economist. She was like, oh, I, they see me as female. The first time she was talked over, not given credit, ignored in a meeting of other economists. She was like, wow, this is so exciting. And then in the thing that sure, she's like, now, it, now it's just as annoying as it is to everybody else who's female. Like for her, it was a sign that they were actually seeing her as female. And because she was transitioning, I think in her fifties, you know, it was, it was hard. The personal one I want to say is also in the book and it's lesbian erasure. Like a lot of pride events are very male specific for one, like there's Dyke Day LA now. I used to live in LA because pride felt so masculine and so gay male oriented to a lot of a lot of women. They were like, eh. So they went off to do their own thing. And then there's heteronormativity when we assume, not we, but people, I mean, you may or may not do it. Being heterosexual is the normal, natural way, the universal way that, or that everybody is. So what you find is, I hark back to that story with my friend and her aunt, I'm subscribed to a subreddit called Sappho and her friend. And there are these jokes like they were friends, and they were roommates. And so I have all these examples that I've collected where people post things where they, they just were assumed to not exist. It feels incomprehensible, like it was incomprehensible to that white interviewer that the white sounding woman was black. It can also be incomprehensible. They're just not thinking. Their mental models don't include, they've erased the fact that there are women who are mostly with or only with other women. And so it becomes very exhausting. And I'm going to say sad making, like just so many people seem so exhausted and so sad and you shouldn't have to shout. Like the person who had to speak loudly to prove to people that she speaks English, shouldn't you shouldn't have to wear a pride badge or like mention all the time. Like people should remember that that lesbians exist, you know, so- what strikes me in both of these cases is if there is some minimal level of acknowledgement, you as a woman in tech or me as a woman in engineering, even if we can get like that sort of sliver of acknowledgement, it feels like the treatment really falls into, you should just feel lucky that we let you come in here in the first place. And you hear that so much also from people of color. You should just have gratitude. Why are you asking for more? You're actually here. It's so common. And there's that distortion of inflating language, right? Like I start a lot of my workshops with a very general breakout discussion because, well, the thing I talk about a lot, and it's in the book too, is perspective taking. 
it's a cognitive skill. It has two steps. And the first step is what would it be like to be in that situation? But the second step, which so many people don't take is what would it be like to be in that situation and have had that person's set of lived experiences, not mine, but them. So a, a thing that I talk about a lot in my inclusive language workshops and talks is people will say, well, I wouldn't mind if someone said it to me. And that's a thing I used to say before I figured this stuff out. So early in grad school, I'd be like, well, I wouldn't mind. And so the answer is, yeah, because I've had my life experiences, but it's a really bad word for some, like that lands so badly because the flavor is so bad because of those experiences. Well, how would it feel, you know, if you're like a dominant group person, like everybody remembers a time that somebody pushed them out. For dominant group people, usually it was age-related or because they were new to town or something. So, oh, they didn't know me yet, or they said I was too young and they remember what it's like. And then I'm like, well, walk with me. What if that was your experience all the time because of some component of your identity? And if somebody said, oh, you should just be lucky you're here. Conversely, let's talk about men doing domestic things and how lauded they are. So how men taking care of children is often called babysitting and how stay-at-home dads feel very isolated and very unseen and very devalued a lot of the time. But how much, you know, somebody was telling me at a workshop a few years ago in Brooklyn, he's like, yeah, I was at the playground with my kids. And he said, women were like, oh, your wife must be so excited. Look at you wearing a carrier. He's like, I'm literally doing less than what my wife does because his hours were longer because he was a high-level manager. When are people told that they should be excited that they're, when are people praised for something that's unremarkable and when are people told that they should be grateful for crumbs the crummiest of crumbs right this is such a common example right somebody leaves work early to do something to take care of kids who is undedicated to their job and who is father of the year and that's why I like a lot of the stuff by Alexis Ohanian, who I met when I was giving uh, some anti-bias workshops to Reddit. And so he talks a lot about parental leave. I mean, so let's talk about reflect reality and erasure. Let's call it parental leave. A person who has carried a baby and then is maybe nursing a baby will have different physical requirements from a person who didn't carry a baby. But other than that, I mean, there are so many ways in which workplace advancement. I mean, so this has been a thing for tenure in academia when the problem is that when men were also given paternity leave, so heterosexual couples, they ended up getting tenure much quicker because they didn't do any, they didn't pick up any of the extra work in the home. And so they sped through writing the things that they needed, the articles and books they needed to get tenure. Whereas the female, this is particularly, I think in econ, female econ professors were slowed down because they were still doing all the work, right? So there are just so many ways that these double standards show up. And so if we can use linguistic distortions to pinpoint where they are and reframe, so that's the semantic frames I didn't get to. And I think it's fair enough. Like it takes a little time. If you haven't had a linguistics training, it can take a little time to get up to speed in semantic frames. But how are we framing a situation and who, who is remarkable? And for what reason? Sometimes who's remarkable being seen remarkable in a good way when they're just being normal and who's being seen as remarkable in a bad way when they're just being regular. So. Okay. Dr. Worth, I'm, I want to wrap us up on this topic of compliments. So 
Compliments are not the only type of feedback that need to happen in the in the workplace, but it's one place where managers do need to be effective. And there are some landmines in compliments. So just give us a little snapshot of some common problems with compliments and where managers need to steer to. So one of the main ones I want to say is that there are sometimes compliments that inadvertently, it's not purposeful on the part of a complimenter, express lowered expectations and surprise, right? So the groups that seem to receive that the most are people of color in the U.S., especially Black people, but not limited to, people who are perceived as female. So like you can be non-binary or transgender, and as long as you're perceived as female, then people are going to treat you a certain way, right? It's not internal gender identity I'm learning through my research. It's really perception of gender um, rather than in anything internal. And then people who are perceptibly disabled, right? So for example, a very common thing that shows up in the U.S., is somebody being told, oh, you're so articulate, right? So I I have a colleague that I've co-led a workshop, uh, an inclusive language workshop on, and she's Black and I am not. And uh, no one has ever said that I'm articulate in any way that wasn't very clearly complimentary. Oh, you're so articulate. I really, like, this was so clear. It was really complicated. And the way you articulated it made everything. So I, I really understand it now. Or, But she, and she went to Stanford and is a, a very well-educated, extremely intelligent person, multiple times in her lifetime has had people say, oh, you're so articulate. And so they're expressing surprise in two ways. What I've learned from many interactions with and interviews with people of color, especially Black Americans, is that the surprise is A, that they control and speak the standard dialect, right? So again, that woman's surprise, are you sure you're Jane Jackson? Like, yeah, I'm sure. And then the other thing is that they're surprised at the level of competence because it's lowered expectations. And so a very brave person in a workshop once said he had grown up in the American South and and when he's uh, visually, I'd say he was probably in his sixties, mid sixties. And he said, well, when I was growing up, someone would say, well, he's really articulate for a colored person. So it's that part too. So we don't say colored person anymore, right? Because the flavor of it has become so negative. So there's a reason why for stigmatized groups, we go through different names a lot because as the flavor of an ethnonym or a label for a group becomes too stigmatized, then we got to find a new one that has a good flavor again. So at some point we had African-American for a long time. Now we have Black. I expected to cycle through again because of all the stigma. But anyway, so that's a compliment that's not great. And I've seen it happen where people have been told how surprisingly articulate they are or how surprising uh, the knowledge is. I, I know a professor of political science and she studies uh, European history. She's a European political science person and people are shocked because they expect her to have, to be studying specifically black history. And they're like, oh, how do you know so much about Germany? And she's like, I have a PhD and I study it, right? So it's this pain of lowered expectations. And so there are also compliments that are given to in particular people with perceptible disabilities. So people, especially who are in wheelchairs, where people are shocked that they're doing very standard things, very standard things. And I I first encountered this when I was giving um, a gender and bias workshop for lawyers. 
continuing legal ed workshop down in LA. And afterwards, this guy came over and he said, me too. Everything you said about the ways that women are devalued and, and treated badly in interactions, me too. Ignored by the wait staff, ignored by the hostess, ignored in meetings, blah, blah, blah. And I looked at him and he was like dominant group all the way. And his suit was so nice. I wish I could get wool, like whatever his, I mean, it was like such a nice Italian suit. And I'm like, oh, because of the wheelchair? And he's like, yeah. So people would look at him in a wheelchair, a guy with a law degree from a very nice university doing excellent legal work. And they would assume that he couldn't order his own food, that they were shocked that he was there to pick up his dry cleaning. Thing after thing after thing, he was assumed to be presumed incompetent is the phrase that comes out a lot in the world. So when there are compliments that show those lowered expectations, they are not good compliments at all. And the other thing I would say to be female specific is managers tend to compliment women for being, for doing emotional labor, for doing office housework, and for not causing problems, all of which are things that can really hold back a woman's career. When you're spending all of your time not saying something because it might, it has been shown to offend people when you express dissent. When you do the note taking, then it's hard to contribute to the meeting. When you're doing the organizing, the, the whole, I don't know, event or mollifying teammates' feelings or all that stuff, where is the work that gets you promoted, right? And then complimenting them for smiling, you know, oh, you look so much prettier when you smile. You know, when you're not smiling, mm. you can look really angry, right? So there are all of these ways that what are we, showing surprise at with the presumed incompetence? And what are we giving feedback for that is actually not beneficial to that employee who's trying to get ahead and to our organization when you've got a big talent pool that's being kept behind because of all these various ways that gender bias shows up, but someone's like, well, my boss needs me to do this. So I guess I'll do it. You know, then they're stuck in this loop and they don't get ahead. Right. Shameless plug. We have done past episodes that focus on topics like stop doing office housework and avoiding non-promotable tasks. So identifying what non-promotable tasks are and how to avoid doing them and delegate them. So definitely if you're a new listener, go back and check those episodes out. But Dr. Wertheim, leave us here with a positive example of What's a better way to give a compliment? Maybe just a, an example of a real compliment that is not just okay, but good to give in the workplace. Sure. So I talked about this with my colleague that I was co-leading that workshop with. So there are times that as a Black woman, she's been told she's articulate and it's landed very well because she could see that it was not presumed incompetent. So I mean, sometimes it might just be too dangerous to say articulate, but I think that you should be able to say it if it's appropriate, reflect reality. So there's a way that you can go up to a person from a stigmatized group, uh, someone in a wheelchair, someone black, someone female who talked about something technical. I mean, how often are women presumed incompetent in technical domains? I mean, almost all the time. And there are ways that you can give a compliment that are specific. Here we go regular, external, and granular, right? Externalized. So say, that was a really difficult topic for articulate. That was a really difficult topic. And you were so articulate. The ways that you described it were so useful to me in language that I hadn't heard before, but made so much sense. I just want to thank you for that excellent job on your presentation. It's very different from, oh, 
you're so articulate, right? Like it's so different. Or for a person with a disability, or you could say something like, uh, again, who might be presumed incompetent, get very specific or the SBI model situation behavior impact is also useful for that. The situation was this, the clients were getting upset. And then the behavior was you went and during the meeting, you quickly called up that stuff and you threw it up on the board. And the impact was the clients felt reassured. You really saved the day. I'm so grateful. There's no way you're really competent, you know, is so different from, oh my God, you're really competent, right? So the, the more granular and specific we get, could it be a compliment for any human being? Yeah, then it's probably safe to say. So that's what I would say. Just as our distortions show us the double standards, what if you're moving to a single standard? That feels really good for the people on the receiving end when they're like objectively across the board, that was a well done thing. Then people can rest assured that it isn't pity, it isn't shock, it isn't surprise. It's a genuinely positive assessment that they can hold to their hearts and feel good about. So go compliment people well. And when you're complimenting babies, tell all babies that they're smart and strong. Tell all babies that they're good looking and well-behaved, right? Those are all good things. Just put it across the board. Love it. Love it so much. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here on Lead to Soar for this discussion and, and going into your book. Where can people find you and your book? Okay. The best way to find me as and my book is at my website, SuzanneWertheim.com. So my name is hard to spell, but you can probably see it if you're listening to this podcast. So that's the best place. And then a lot of people like to follow me on LinkedIn and or subscribe to my newsletter because I give away free inclusive language tips and tricks and analyses in both of those places. I post pretty regularly. That's how you found me with the double standards inflating language. And then um, twice a month, I have a newsletter on the 15th. It is a regular newsletter where I analyze something topical. And then on the first of the month, I answer a reader's anonymized question. It's an advice column. So people write to me and then I anonymize the question. So get your questions answered for free. Subscribe to my newsletter. Oh, I love it so much. Thank you. And we will put a link to your website in the show notes. Thank you again for joining us. This has been a fun and enlightening conversation. It's been a pleasure. You've been incredibly well prepared. It's been <laughs> an absolute delight to speak with you. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for joining us for this episode of Lead to Soar. We sincerely appreciate your honest, positive reviews. You can leave questions at leadtosoar.com for Michelle and Mel to answer on future episodes. Until next time, we hope you'll use what you've learned here and lead to soar.